This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Wow, I've been in practice about 25 years now. And Self Work is about me trying to extend the walls of my practice so that many of you who perhaps never would have come into therapy, or perhaps some of you who have, might know what it's like to talk to a mental health professional. I am definitely one to talk about not only just the problem or the issue or the dynamic, whatever we want to call it, but also focus on what you can do about it. And we cover very diverse topics here at Self Work. But before anything today, I'm always asking y'all for ratings and reviews. And this month I had several ratings, which is just fabulous. Thank you. But some reviews that really gave me some great information. For example... B. Junip says, I've really enjoyed listening to the topics Dr. Margaret presents. They help me to think about things I may not have looked at before. So that gives me a sense of, okay, I am expanding topics for people, and that's what I want to do. And then this other one, which I love the title of, Short and Sweet, by Ranger. I enjoy that each episode so far is short and full of information. I'm always on the run, and like many others, I have no time for me. I really love to be able to learn and apply some of the knowledge without having to make more room on my plate. See, guys, this is the kind of feedback I love, because as a still a fairly naive podcaster, I don't know whether the episodes are too long, too short, whether I'm filling it with too much information, with not enough information. So this kind of review is really helpful to me. I do try to keep them to about 20 to 22 minutes, and I'm glad that the information is packed in there in a way that you can understand and enjoy and then use, utilize. I'm all about what you can do about it. So thanks so much to those reviewers and those of you who gave me ratings. Today's topic is going to be about self-control. Now, not the kind of self-control that you might need with an addiction or something like that. We're talking about self-control in communication instead of flying off the handle or getting your feelings hurt. What kind of things can you do to add more of a sense of self-control to your own emotions and reactions? There's a simple mantra to help you remember, but it's really not enough on its own. We're going to talk about how values are related to self-control, and I'll have an example from someone in my own practice, and then we'll finish up with three things that lead to a greater sense of self-control and thus healthier communication, which is something we can all use, right? My email from a listener today, which is a weekly feature, is from someone who had identified with my podcast on perfectly hidden depression and then said, but if you have perfectly hidden depression, can you really be suicidal? So that's the question I'll answer today. Thanks so much for being here. And let's talk about self-control. There's a very simple mantra out there, mantra being something that you can kind of repeat to yourself and remind you in a simple way what you want to do or what a goal is. So there's a simple mantra out there that can really help with self-control, especially emotional self-control. What is it? 
It's respond, not react. Respond, not react. Now that sounds pretty easy, but it's not. Learning how to control your reactions to what's being said or done around you can be really difficult. If you think about it, our culture is dominated by people who are constantly and even violently reacting to one another. Whether it's on Twitter or Jerry Springer or the real wives of some city, it's everywhere. In fact, overreactions sometimes get a lot of publicity, and we justify them completely. We hear others say, or ourselves say, the rest of you dumbasses need to wake up. This makes me furious, and you're incredibly stupid, or you're a big effing liar. We have those things all the time, back and forth. We see them. We hear them. We perhaps even do it ourselves. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that anger is a bad thing in and of itself, We tend to get angry about something that threatens our values, and we each have values that are important to us, and we're ready to stand up for them, sometimes even fight for them. It's the level or the intensity of the reaction, the impulsivity involved, the non-thought-out, way-over-the-top, immediate reaction that can be dangerous. Self-control is about learning how to filter to manage your emotional reactions so that they become decisive responses to whatever is threatening you, disappointing you, or just making you feel like you're going crazy. Basically, you keep your mind hooked up to what your heart is feeling, so you respond, not react. In fact, I have a somewhat painful memory from my childhood. I guess my mother was trying to teach me this in her own way. And she used to write the letters with her finger on my forehead, T-H-I-N-K. I hated it. I can still feel her finger doing that. But I guess I was pretty impulsive and emotional when I was a kid. Uh, There'd be some to say. I've certainly had my moments as an adult. So anyway, what is your value system? And what does it have to do with self-control? There's a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And he said in it, The ability to subordinate an impulse to a value is the essence of the proactive person. Now, that's a mouthful. (laughs) And what does that mean? Proactive people or people who are doing something about problems that are around them, they just don't act on impulse. They act on their values, but they don't let their impulses guide their behavior. So he says to subordinate an impulse to a value. I think you can hear the difference. For example, years ago, a man and woman came to my office for the first time for a couple's work. The actual room I was using was tiny. In fact, three people was a bit of a squeeze, so it was cozy, to say the least. I opened the session in my normal way, asking, so what brings you to therapy, and how are you hoping I can help? The woman started crying immediately, and her husband looked really perplexed. I'm not really sure why we're here, he said. There was silence, and then she looked at me. I'm planning to move out this weekend. I want a separation. I'm miserable in my marriage. Well, the husband looked at first shocked, and then he became angry, very, very angry. You've waited until we're in front of a stranger to tell me this? Why couldn't you tell me at home? What do you expect me to do? You've had an affair, haven't you? I thought he might get up and leave, actually. So I asked a few questions, trying to kind of slow things down a little bit. How long have they been together? Did she know what was causing her unhappiness? It certainly sounded as if he was flummoxed by this move, and I tried to give both support for what was a very painful moment in their lives. 
I learned they'd been together for over 20 years. They'd had an affair before they married. They had two children, one in college and one a senior in high school. She'd been a stay-at-home mom. He worked in a huge corporation and had done very well financially. She said, we've grown apart. He's so wrapped up in his work. I want to get a job and feel like I have choices of my own. It was a story I'd heard a lot over the years. Two people who'd both done what they believed they should, worked hard, raised their kids, but forgotten to nurture their own relationship. They'd also likely never addressed problems with trust that arise when a marriage starts out with an affair. Whatever the reason, the pain was palpable in the room. He stared at me, and he was still fuming, and said, Well, she's taken all the control. I don't have a choice. My response? What do you want more than anything? You have lots of choices. You could leave this room, slam the door, and head to the meanest divorce lawyer you can find. You could call your children and tell them how their mother is abandoning your marriage. You can let your anger and hurt be in control and try to hurt her back. Or... You can hear what she's saying and see where it goes. What I was basically saying was he could respond, not react. He could decide what value was more important to him than flying off the handle or grabbing control. How do you respond when suddenly someone pulls in front of you when you're driving? Do you get enraged or do you remind yourself that you've done that unintentionally as well? After you change your mind about the best way to get somewhere... What's more important to you, having a chance to get angry or being understanding? What do you value more? The way you react is due to a lot of things. Maybe you're triggered by something from your past, something you've never resolved, something that's keeping you from what I call being an emotional grown-up. That's a podcast, by the way, how to be an emotional grown-up. Maybe you're exhausted and your overreaction is due to being out of reserves. Maybe you've been angry or resentful for a long time, and your self-restraint is used up completely. Maybe you're taken aback by something you're not prepared to hear, so you explode. These are reasons, not justifications, but with enough self-awareness, you can try to assess where you are in your own reactivity and modulate it. So I want to make the point one more time. You have to decide what you value more. Maybe you're looking for an excuse to get mad. Maybe you need to let off some steam. But if you do that with a son or a daughter or a wife or your mother or father, you know, that's not really appropriate. That anger or that frustration or whatever it is doesn't belong with them. And it's an overreaction when you don't wait and let your mind and your values help you respond. There are three simple things that can help with control of your emotions. They're not easy to do, but they are simple things. You're also giving the message that you care about the conversation. Let's say you're getting way too overheated in a conversation you're having with your partner, and you're starting to feel like you're losing control of your emotions. Boy, have I been there, done that. The first thing is to recognize when you're having an overreaction. Stop and ask yourself, wait, is my reaction too intense? Is it rational? The very act of stopping your emotions and questioning their validity can offer you the few seconds you need to realize that you're the one overreacting. You can search for the reason you're getting so highly triggered. 
If you're tired, get some rest. If you've been resentful for a long time, get a book such as The Dance of Anger and learn more assertiveness instead of flying off the handle. If you're being triggered by something from your past, journal or work with a therapist on just how that's happening. Understanding and accepting that you're being overreactive to certain things and taking responsibility for that, if you do that, you're much more likely to respond well and appropriately and not escalate a conversation that simply doesn't need to be escalated. The second one is to be careful if you need to choose to withdraw. You know, sometimes we're just simply not equipped at that moment to hear what our partner or our child or whomever is trying to tell us. You're too tired again. Some of the reasons we gave above. You may need to have a conversation in order to pull yourself together. Whatever it is for the reason to withdraw. But withdrawal can also appear to the other person as abandonment or not quite so dramatically, at least as a way for you to grab control. And you're not really doing that when you're careful. What you're saying is, I need to not have this conversation now. So you reveal, hey, I'm overreacting and I know I am and I don't want to. So you state you need time to think things over. You want to understand what's underneath both your own reaction so you won't say or do something impulsive, and you want to understand what your partner or your friend or your child is trying to tell you. So here's an example comment. This may sound a little like therapy gone nuts, but use your own language, okay? So you might say something like, you know, I can feel myself getting angry, but I want to try to understand. I'm going to take a break and cool off. I want to get back to this because it's important we be able to talk about it. That's the message you want to give. My overreaction doesn't mean that I'm discounting what you're saying to me or I'm trying to make you not say it or make you not feel that way or tell you you're wrong. I want to hear what you have to say, but I have to admit to you, I'm not in a place right now to hear it. If you can get that skill under your belt, wow, that can make a huge difference in your communication with your partner or anybody else for that matter. The third thing, I'm restating a little bit, but repetition perhaps is good. So you state very clearly that you'll return to the conversation because it's important to you to resolve the issue. That last part, I can't stress enough. The message that you'll be back. Because if you disappear, go into another room, leave the house, or immerse yourself in a video game, that can feel terrible to the other person. Saying you want to continue the conversation builds trust. You know, and if you don't, they're likely to follow you, and things are likely to escalate. You leave the room, and they're going to come at you in the next room. Or you go on a walk, and they're waiting for you at the front porch. Well, where have you been? Why did it take you so long? I can't believe you left. If instead you say, I just need some time to think about things, I'll be back in an hour, or I'll be back in 30 minutes. What you don't want the other person to do is become afraid, or feel abandoned, or feel unimportant. You can even say, let's pick this conversation back up in the morning, when we're both not so tired. And then you get up in the morning 30 minutes early, and you pick it back up. Again, you build trust. And trust can get you a long way through 
basic disagreements you have with one another or when you're trying to talk about hard things. If you trust that the other person is really listening and wants to listen, maybe not agree, but listen, then that communication can go much, much better. Oh, and by the way, the guy whose wife wanted a separation, he made the decision that very day, really, that he cared more about the marriage than he did his pride. And it did hurt his pride. Of course it hurt his pride. He calmed down, he sat, and he listened. When they came back the next week, he told me he'd helped her move out. They together talked to their children. He joined a men's group and started exercising. He did all kinds of things for himself. I can't actually remember all of them, but there were a bunch. She ended being gone around six months. But when they stopped therapy with me, she'd been back in their home for around three months. And they had built a whole different marriage. So good things can happen when you think when you monitor and manage your emotional reactions, and when what you value the most remains your top priority. That's not getting even or getting mad, but understanding and loving very well. So our email from a listener today is about perfectly hidden depression. She says... I have very recently read an article you wrote on perfectly hidden depression and listened to your podcasts. I'm deeply interested by the subject, although I've never seen a psychiatrist. I find it very difficult to talk about my issues with people, both because I believe that my problems aren't worth being talked about and because it's hard for me to say what's on my mind. Yet I told a friend of mine that I was not okay and I just didn't want to exist anymore. I especially didn't want to live. After expressing this feeling, she told me that if I really was suicidal, I would be laying in bed all day. I wouldn't have the energy to move or to feed myself, and ended her argument by saying that if I really wanted to die, I would have already killed myself. The thing is, she's someone that I trust and respect, and she also went through some dark times and knows about depression since she witnessed it from up close. I cannot help but wonder, is she right? I get that the D in PhD, that's perfectly hidden depression, stands for depression, hence the possibility of having suicidal thoughts and tendencies. I also know that I'm depressed, although I don't show signs of it. I just want to know from your point of view if perfectly hidden depression and wanting to end one's life are two incompatible things, or if someone who doesn't show signs of depression yet suffers from perfectly hidden depression can actually be thinking and taking action to end their life. I was blown away by this email because, yes, one of the reasons why I am most passionate about perfectly hidden depression is that more and more I'm hearing about people committing suicide who no one recognizes their depression and it's frightening. So, here's my response. I'm so glad you wrote to me. Your friend is trying to be helpful. She's describing what she knows, classic symptoms of a severe melancholic depression, but she's not right. Since beginning research on perfectly hidden depression, there are many people who do not show these classic symptoms, yet can be actively suicidal. I know I've heard from them. I've talked with them. I've talked with their family members when they have committed suicide, 
and their family members have heard about Perfectly Hidden Depression and reached out to me. Please listen to the other podcasts on Perfectly Hidden Depression, and perhaps you'll get more of the picture of exactly what it is. And let me clear up a couple of things you also said. First, I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. The latter is a medical doctor and has gone to medical school and can prescribe medications. I went to graduate school, not medical school. And in most states, I cannot prescribe medications. There are a few exceptions to that rule, but in the vast majority of states, that's not possible. Second, perfectly hidden depression isn't a diagnosable mental illness. It's a syndrome or a group of characteristics, behavior, or beliefs that are often found together, and they end up masking what I believe is depression underneath. I came up with the term perfectly hidden depression because I thought it described those behaviors as well as I could imagine. But third, please, if you have any suicidal thoughts, treat them seriously. You may have to tell someone that you seek treatment with that you hide your feelings and that you're very good at detaching from pain and keeping it at bay. But you do have these thoughts. Show them my articles. Give them my podcast links. And if they don't and are like your friend, keep looking until you find a clinician who think outside of the box. I cannot stress this too much. The recent book, What Made Maddie Run, really points this out. Maybe I'll have that book on a free trial on my next audible.com podcast because it's a great book about a young girl, a young athlete who had talked about some of her unhappiness at the college she was going to, her unhappiness with being a college athlete, the stress it caused, the pressure it caused, but no one knew just how depressed she was and that she was Googling how to kill herself. And she did kill herself quite tragically. I tell you what, I will make that my audiblebook.com for the next podcast. So if you're interested, listen in and I'll give you that free trial offer next week. Thanks again so much for listening to Self Work. And I want to thank again the people who've left me ratings and reviews. I would love for the rest of you to. Wow, if all of you did, that would be phenomenal. <laughs> Feel free to email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I love getting your emails and I read some of them here on the podcast. If you don't want me to, then I certainly will not. But I will answer your question. I'd like to get to know who you are. We now have listeners in every state of the United States, California leading the way. And there are many other countries as well. I don't always know the mental health systems for other countries, but I can always learn and at least try to help you where you are. Plus, it'll help me get to know you all a little bit better. And that means a lot to me. Again, that's Ask Dr. Margaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can subscribe either wherever you listen, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever, or you can subscribe to my website, at drmargaretrutherford.com. If you do that, you'll receive a weekly newsletter with both my blog post and my podcast for that week, as well as a free ebook, Seven Commandments of Good Therapy. I would love for you to do that. You can jump over to my Facebook page if you're a Facebook person. It's Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Pinterest. You can find me. I'm easy to find. I share a little bit more of my personal life, especially on Instagram. I love to cook. 
And I want to remind you in this particular episode, especially since it's on relationships, that I do have one gift book available for sale on Amazon. It's Marriage is Not for Chickens. If you know somebody who has an upcoming anniversary or is getting married, it's a really great book to give them. It's $9.95 on Amazon. The post that it's based on, when it was on the Huffington Post, earned 200,000 likes and 53,000 shares. So I decided to turn it into a little book. Again, it's Marriage is Not for Chickens. Give it a look-see and see what you think. Thanks again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode on self-control. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.